0: Good morning, everyone.
1: Welcome back to our class on Proverbs. We are going to be in chapter 8. Is that right? 18 and 19. Hopefully, today. Yes, chapter 18. And we have got an absolutely wonderful section coming up. Again, we're under the subheading, A Foolish Son, Avoiding Fools and Foolishness. And here we're going to have opportunity to talk about a good many things. Uh, Some repetition to be sure, but we'll be able to talk about justice and partiality. We'll be able to talk about rich and poor. We'll be able to talk about where our real confidence and strength in this life are. And we'll get to talk about lots, and we'll get to talk about the mouth. So we've got a really exciting section ahead. I'm looking forward to getting through it. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever amen all right so if memory serves which apparently it serves less and less the older i get 17 25 through 28 we had covered and that's the beginning let's just get a running start into 18 1 the new material a foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness To her who bore him. So, not only does foolishness affect oneself, but those nearest of kin. Don't be like that is the obvious lesson. Probably less obvious, but in the larger context, would be don't hang with people who are like that. (laughs) That might be another application. 26, to impose a fine on a righteous man is not good, nor to strike the noble for their uprightness. So this is a theme we'll see recur in this section. And we spent time last week talking about that, that the role in particular of government is to reward those who do good and punish those who do evil. Where government is not doing that or is doing the opposite of that, we see government corrupted and not in line with Christ and and His overarching kingdom. Those rulers will be held accountable to Him, Psalm 2. In our personal lives also then, and maybe in our business dealings, Uh, We don't want to repay evil for good. When someone does you something good, the last thing on your mind should be repaying that with evil. And when you do good unto others and they repay you with evil, you shouldn't just know. I know that stings. I know that burns. No good deed goes unpunished. It just stinks when it's somebody that has a face and a name. When that happens, you need to entrust yourself to the Lord and just realize that He is the true judge. You've done nothing wrong. Don't get a bad conscience. Just know that you've done nothing wrong and entrust the recompense to the Lord. Okay, so Proverbs 17, 27. To impose a fine on a righteous man is not good, nor to strike the noble for their uprightness. 27, whoever restrains his words has knowledge. And he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. So this will be a theme recurring. I mean, throughout the, the entirety of Proverbs, of course, and then again in this section. That's, I think, to summarize, I just use the language of slow down. That's my own mental cue. Like slow down. That's the only way you're going to restrain your words. To stop and think. What is the end goal here? that is good and godly that I have in mind. Now, how do I use my words to accomplish that? That's the ideal. Unless you can formulate that even in some kind of small sense, uh, short-term picture, it's best to just remain as quiet as you can. So to restrain his words has knowledge. We're going to see how later in the Proverbs the man himself is seen as like this stream that's just constantly flowing. So to put, a, to put a dam on your mouth, as it were, to restrain the flow of words and to use them in a way that is circumspect and wise. That's what's in view here. And then, of course, a cool spirit, we talked about that. The opposite would be a hot temper. So to have a cool spirit is to be of understanding, and to be of understanding is to have a cool spirit. Slow to anger. Not incapable of anger. We've talked at length about that, that this whole uh, thing is just a modern American invention that anger is sin and whoever is not being nice is already in the wrong. This is all just complete rubbish. We have to relearn as Christians to not be nice when necessary, to be angry when good, (laughs) to hate even as God hates. These are virtues and virtues that we need to reacquire also part and parcel for those men here of the feminization of christianity be nice don't be angry don't be aggressive show no evidences of testosterone <laughs> whatsoever yeah so god's word clearly uh, a rock upon which we can stand and regain and re these godly virtues so have a cool spirit it's a man of understanding slow to anger twenty eight then even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise when he closes his lips he is deemed intelligent it's just talking about the value of keeping your mouth shut <laughs> such an underrated virtue and I don't know about you I'm still you know I'm in my mid 40s and I still uh, I still catch myself once in a while saying stupid things and you just I mean if there's one thing I I think we should self-chastise. It's when you realize that you could have kept your lips shut. You've got to say, I can't believe you fell into that again. I can't believe you couldn't zip it just long enough to think one thought or to realize where this is going to go. So I think some self-chastisement is good, and I think that's a particular area where we can self-chastise too. Um, the same tr- is true with everything in the mouth, by the way. Um, you got a problem like cursing using foul language sometimes uh sometimes you do or sometimes it seems to be like a seasonal cold we catch uh, self-chastise i don't want to speak that way i'm done speaking that way fools speak that way if i can be strong enough in my word i don't need to embellish it with uh, low speech so um, when it comes to those things that flow forth from the lips, some self-chastisement back to restraining the tongue is the ideal way to proceed. Okay, then 18.1. Uh, now we're in the new material, Proverbs 18.1. This is a tough one. This is a tough one, especially for males. I want to irritate you all, even as this verse kind of irritates me in the right way. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. So what is, the, what is the desire of just about every man you talk to? <laughs> want to buy my ranch out in the middle of nowhere and never deal with anyone ever again. <laughs> or, or at least that's a high percentage of us. So this isolation that we and, and this is the this is the kind of delusion. We think we want it. And we really don't. Or, in so far as we do, we're not recognizing that that isolation is terrible for us, terrible for us, because man was created for God in the first and for neighbor in the second. Man is created by God to be an externally oriented creature. To so say that we don't have internality, we absolutely do, but and that's an important part. Of who we are as human beings but to be externally oriented is of the utmost importance and it really has to do with quality of life when people are are depressed when people are struggling with uh, bitter thoughts when people are finding themselves just out of sorts and uh, things are just in life nothing's going well the very best thing you can do is get outside of your own head. The very best thing you can do is go to a Bible study you haven't, that, you, that you haven't gone to. Or go do some good work or go do something in the church. Volunteer for some setup or cleanup in the church. Get outside of your own head. Get outside of yourself. It is incredible just what a change that makes in your own internal makeup. And that is all because we're designed. So, like it or no, which my sinful flesh doesn't like it, I would love to be solitary, independent, on my own. You know, but, that, but you just recognize that that's not really how we're made. And a man can function in those environs in only the short term. Otherwise, he's going to begin to deteriorate. And he's going to be less than who God has made him to be, less than who God has called him to be particularly true in this life. I mean, who knows? In the new heavens, and the new earth, maybe you'll float out and see me in some, you know, Wyoming of the future. Uh, but in this life, we're called, you know, we're called to duty. And this, is a, this life is short. It's a spiritual war. All hands on deck, all men to, the, to arms. And to just say, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check out on all that, and it's going to work out well for me. It's not. So, um, just just some thoughts surrounding orbiting this first half of verse one. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire, which is interesting. This ta'avah, this desire or delight, isn't a word that's used frequently in the Old Testament. But where it is used most prominently is in Genesis three six, which is when the uh, Eve sees the fruit and it is a delight to her eyes so she desires this thing and it's going to be good for food and it's going to be increase her knowledge and it's going to be great and of course that whole desire that whole view is completely wrong, completely upside down inside out and so. Fascinating that Solomon chooses that word, or the Holy Spirit chooses that word here. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire, in effect, seeks his own fall. Every once in a while, my... um, It's probably TMI, but... Every once in a while, my wife will take our kiddos over to Arizona to see her sister. They've got a swimming pool, and they'll do all that. So I get to bachelor for like 48 hours or something like this. And it is just incredible how little I want to do dishes during that time. And I kind of get this panicked moment, like when my wife says, "Okay, we're leaving. We're on our way home. And it's like, oh, gracious, what have I done? (laughs) Uh, so it's a microcosmic view into how it is not good for a man to be alone and this freedom we think we have and want really uh, is not good and we end up sort of surrounded by the, by the pig pods as it were real fast okay so second half parallel and positive uh, he breaks out the sense there is rages he breaks out or rages against all sound judgment so, taken as a total, whoever isolates himself, seeks his own desire, he breaks out against all sound judgment. And of course, we know that's true because God himself says it's not good for a man to be alone. And even one who is not given in marriage is not to be given alone, uh, to, given to aloneness, but rather is to embrace those around him, to embrace family, to embrace church, to embrace country. So it's not good for a man to be alone, and even if that even if that means you're single or not married, uh, that's fine. Don't be alone. Don't be isolated. Be interconnected with people. That's what you were made for, and that's also just the very essence of this life, this this age.
0: Yes, sir. Please. It's a good question in the context of what we're talking about, or the, or this proverb. Uh, you know, I've come to understand that there are extroverts and introverts and extroverts will get energized by engaging people and they come back and introverts, they get drained and they have to be alone. <laughs> yeah. Is this something that is, uh, we create on our own in our flesh and we kind of gravitate toward that or did God design that in us, uh, an introvert, extrovert nature? Mm.
1: Yeah, I I don't want to get too deep with it, because I'm not really standing on a clear and illuminating word of God when it comes to that question. I do think that just as a general observation, that in a fallen world, we seem to be somewhere between these two poles. And some folks find themselves more in the middle, uh, but maybe most of us, you know, you go to a party, or you feel energized, or you've got to go do something. Whatever something is doesn't really matter. You've just got to go do it. Uh, You can tell I'm an introvert. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so or introverts, you've really got to uh, you've got to take that time to regain your sanity and going out drains, but being quiet, doing nothing, staying at home, whatever the case may be, re-energizes you. So I don't think that the, either of those psychological makeups really speak to the fact that nonetheless, we are created for externality. It's just a recognition that we have different internal makeups and require different internal things in order to continue to to function optimally so for some people that's doing stuff and talking to people and interacting and um that feeds them now what those folks are going to struggle with is in general is slow down and read the word of god slow down and meditate slow down and pray slow down and think That's what an introvert tends to be strong at. Where an introvert has to be prodded is, go have a conversation with that person. It's not going to kill you, really. (laughs) Get out and do something. It's good to do things. So, yeah, wherever you find yourself, just start to understand that whether God designed you this way or the fall designed you this way, I don't know how much fruitfulness is there. Just you are this way. So acknowledge that and work with it. Um, Use what you've been given. Use yourself as an instrument. Best possible way under God's service, and then and then also the, have an eye towards the others, especially spouse, because very frequently it's God's good pleasure to unite introverts and extroverts just for the sheer joy of of, of the friction, I guess. Um, so yeah, just pay attention to that, and especially um, yeah, I. Yeah, I'm, I don't know. Our our society has been really extroverted, I think, corporately, but increasingly it's becoming more isolated and introverted. Increasingly, it's more like you know, you you get in your little pod of an apartment, and you wake up, and you get in your little pod of a vehicle, and you drive to your little pod at which you work, and you talk to as few people or as yeah as few people as possible, and you get in your little pod and go back to your pod, and the whole life if is a life in a pod and. Maybe you get on the internet, but it just doesn't feel real, and there's reason for that, obviously. So, yeah, I, th- I would say corporately we have to be careful because we seem to have taken a big, big step toward uh, corporate kind of introversion, isolation. Interactions with others are f- have a kind of facade to them, a kind of fictionality to them. Careful of. Any other thoughts in this vein? Okay. So then on to uh, (laughs) Honda 2. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Now, it's always easier to notice the sins of others than it is to notice the sins in ourselves. That's part of the sinful condition. That built-in bias. But no doubt you've had the experience where you're conversing with someone and they're not actually listening to you. They're just waiting for their turn to speak and sometimes not even waiting, just trampling right over the top of you, which shows they have no clue what you're saying and could care less. So uh, then as you see that in others, you're given a glimpse and a window into seeing that in yourself and again, doing a little self chastisement, a little self criticism in making sure that you, here's the key word again, slow down and listen to what people are saying. And that's going to be a theme then throughout chapter 18, not only to slow down and think before you speak, but slow down and listen. Now, while this is just, I mean, kind of wisdom that is accessible to anyone who has ears to hear... The real foundation of this, as wisdom that flows from Christ, whose wisdom incarnate, wisdom in the flesh, is that again, we have in mind in the restraining of our tongue and in the opening of our ears unto our neighbor, we have in mind the furtherance of the kingdom of God. We have in mind the goal of shepherding, and I'm using that in kind of quotes here in a very informal way, of shepherding those around us toward eternal life and toward... Christ, So to use our lips unto that end, to restrain them and use them unto that end, and to use our ears likewise, a person might not be having the problem that we think they're having. A person might not be having the problem that, um, oh, I've been there, done that, let me tell you how to get out of that. That's, a, that's generally speaking a very foolish perspective and a very foolish way of thinking and approaching something because you actually haven't you've been through something at best like that but the personality was different, the people involved were different, the circumstances were different so listen very carefully uh, before you give any advice and then give advice with a certain fear and intrepidation too advice is one of the last things I like to give Really easy to be wrong. And then who's to blame? <laughs> the one who took upon himself to advise. Okay, so a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Obviously, we recognize this in others, we can recognize it in ourselves. Let's stop and let's listen that we can receive understanding. when wickedness comes, contempt comes also, and with dishonor comes disgrace. So sort of this idea of what you reap is what you sow. The reaping of wickedness ends up in the fruit of contempt and the, the, or I should say the sowing of wickedness and the sowing of dishonor means reaping or harvesting disgrace. So As you are wicked or as you are dishonorable, then what follows is contempt and disgrace. That's frequently true in this life. Um, Temporal consequence. But ultimately true in the next age. As those who are wicked and dishonorable in this life will be held in universal contempt and disgrace. So your reputation is more than this life only. Or the words of a man's mouth are deep waters. And this is enigmatic. All the commentators struggle with this one. And you'll see, I mean, you'll just see, like, what does that mean? Is it positive? Is it negative? Is it deep waters in our mind, like, tend to be maybe poetically some sort of, like, deep thoughts or profundity or something like that. But I don't, I don't know that that's what's in view here. It could be it's enigmatic enough to be but the words of a man's mouth are deep waters probably means there's deep waters and there's a ceaseless flow of words It's probably all that means like is there any end to words (laughs) it's just people talk all the time that's probably the sense and then the next line the fountain of wisdom is a bubbling but flowing is better the fountain of wisdom is a flowing brook. So here's a positive take, a biblical take on that, and that is the fountain of wisdom, that being like, and for us, the fount of wisdom is Christ is the Word of God, and that fount of wisdom flows through. I think here's a beautiful promise that the Word of God is infinite, and the wisdom of God is infinite, and you're never going to exhaust it. You're never going to get, okay, I've been a Christian for 50-plus years. I know all there is to know. Evidently not. Evidently, you don't know the first thing, which is one can ceaselessly enjoy and ceaselessly grow into the wisdom of God the wisdom of God is like an ocean and we're like little fish or like an ocean and a theologian maybe is like a marine biologist hey I know this and I know that and look at this and look at that and appreciate this which you couldn't have otherwise appreciated but everybody can swim in that ocean and everyone can enjoy it and everyone can profit and not even a marine biologist knows the depths and expanse of the sea and can embrace everything therein So a wonderful reminder that God's word and God's wisdom are just infinitely vast and nobody can say they've got the truth or they've exhausted it or they've graduated. Uh, It just keeps going like a fount that, uh, so to use the language here, like a fountain of wisdom that is a continuously flowing brook or a continuously flowing stream. So again, kind of a freighted image there, because in the new heavens and the new earth flowing through Jerusalem is this water, this river, and so here to to contemplate that river as being a never-ending, ceaseless flow of God's wisdom out unto his people, feeding that tree from which the nations eat and are healed. Okay, five, it is not good to be partial to the wicked or to deprive the righteous of justice. One that's superficially simple and obvious and very much like chapter 17, verse 26 that we just hit already in this section. But I think, and I don't really want to do this, but to con- to contemplate this proverb properly, one would want to think, why? What are the motivations to be partial to the wicked? That would be a profitable pursuit. i can throw a few out there because of fear, because you might benefit. Maybe even a more sophisticated, but nonetheless foolish, kind of benevolence towards the wicked. At any rate, it is not good to be partial, that is, not be for or against, over, overly for or overly against, but to be impartial to the wicked. Then, likewise, to not reprove the, uh, or to not deprive the righteous of justice. So, that might again kind of come from this sophisticated yet nonetheless foolish idea of like, well, you're righteous, you should understand, you should be able to accept this injustice against you because, after all, you're above that. It's not wise to do that unto others. If you want to accept that yourself, well and good, but to impose that upon another is not wise. So don't deprive the righteous of justice. And by the way, if lest lest you think that God Himself is in violation of this, which I think if this world went on forever, or if this world just like stopped and all the screens of everyone went blank forever, I think you'd have a very good case to make against God that he is unjust. And I think you'd make that case on the basis of God's own word. You'd be joining your voice with the psalmists and the prophets and many others uh, who voice that complaint against God. Of course, why does the Holy Spirit inspire that very complaint against God? To remind us of the fact that right now it is not fair and it is not just, wait until the judgment. Wait until God balances the scales. What you see in this life is just half the equation. Wait for the other half. On that day, we are assured by the very same scriptures that there will be not a single person in the new heavens and the new earth, or in the lake of fire, who can accuse God of injustice. It will all be fair. It will all be right. All books will be settled. All will be repaid, good or ill. We will all receive what we have done in the body, as St. Paul says, in the New Testament. So don't worry about justice, or rather, and especially Injustice, You're going to see it everywhere. Don't think that God himself is, is unjust. Don't think that God himself is one who deprives the righteous of justice. He will not. Even, by the way, the martyrs under the throne in Revelation 6 are saying and praying in heaven, How long, O Lord? How long until you take Vengeance upon those who spilled our blood. So, a longing for justice on earth and in heaven. Indeed, until Christ comes in judgment, that longing for justice will exist. But when he comes, it will be final and satisfying in such a way that no one will be able to wag a finger against God or make an accusation against God. Which, by the way, just to take it one step deeper without hopefully falling into the abyss, would be to suggest this. That the idea that we need to somehow defend God or present God as just in the here and now is a fool's errand. He doesn't want it. He doesn't want us to defend his justice. And this is what so much of the problem of evil or the problem of suffering and all the various arguments are, is their attempts to defend God's fairness in this age only. All of the scriptures tell us that that's not the case. Why would we try to make the case that God is fair in this life only? Why wouldn't we simply point to the judgment and say, that's when he will make all things fair. So the beauty of this is that justice and grace aren't in any way opposed to one another. Law and gospel in this sense aren't in any way opposed to one another. But as St. Paul says in Romans, God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Those two things operate in harmony. Grace and justice operate in harmony with God. They're not opposed to one another. I mean, is it truly unjust that you go to heaven since you are a sinner condemned by the law? I suppose from a certain angle that would seem to be the case, but it in fact isn't. It is 100% just because each and every one of your sins, right down to the idle word you spoke, has been placed upon Christ and he has paid that penalty. That's the fulfillment of justice in your stead and in your place. The gospel isn't the perversion of justice, it's the fulfillment of justice. That's a huge distinction. If you lose that, you're going to fall into all kinds of nonsense the law against the gospel justice against grace god against himself he just can't decide if he's angry with you uh in the under the through the lens of the law or loves you through the lens of christ i mean all of this is a complete wrong turn in theology and will lead you into uh, false teaching and lead others into false belief so you want to get these things real straight. All right, then, uh, let's pause there. Let me see if you've got any thoughts or reflections. Otherwise, we'll go into just some more of these great proverbs. We've got some
0: fantastic ones coming up. Point you were just making. No. Uh, in philosophy, I know that this is evil to talk about philosophy, but in philosophy, we, traditionally, we've made a distinction between distributive justice and retributive Justice. Distributive justice is when everybody gets what they deserve, right? God gets praise, right? Uh, You know, whatever. Uh, Retributive justice is what you do when distributive justice is not satisfied. When when things aren't distributed right, you try to balance the scales, as it were. You're you're restoring distributive justice. Now, the thing that's interesting to me is we've got a massive problem with distributive justice in our world caused by sin. Man turns away from God and from each other. We do not treat, we don't give people what they ought to receive from us. And we take more than we deserve. And what restores that is God's mercy, is the cross. And so it's not that justice is in in, in, uh, in opposition to mercy it justice is satisfied by god 's mercy because it 's god 's mercy it 's the cross that will restore all the things that are out of balance right so is it mercy and justice so far from being opposites justice
1: yeah yeah so i think yeah I think that um, would be another way or a subset of The general point I'm making, right, and in complete agreement with uh, the general point I'm making, uh, that that justice and mercy aren't opposed. Yeah. They work together in one way or another, examined in this frame or that in harmony. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for that. Anything else we want to add? Okay, very good. So then on to Chapter 18, verse 6, A fool's lips walk into a fight, and his mouth invites a beating. Isn't that great? We've got we've got the phrase, <laughs> that guy's face is so punchable. Have you heard that expression? <laughs> He's got a real punchable face. What, what that really means is the way that a man holds his face. I mean, maybe his face to one degree or another has been morphed and, and shaped by his own uh arrogance and his own wickedness and his own uh, uh, how to describe it. I'm kind of at a loss for words, but, but more than anything, it's how he holds his face. That's what really makes a punchable face. (laughs) When I graduated from seminary, I never thought I'd be talking about punchable faces, but here we are. Uh, So instead of a a punchable face, you've got a uh, beatable mouth. Not much difference between the two, conceptually the same. So a mouth uh, that talks out of turn invites a beating, and a fool, by the use of his lips, walks into a fight. And of course, um, physically that's in view here. You know, you, it, it used to be that you could sort of like resolve a lot of conflicts by uh, a, a very measured fight. And that would be it. That would be the res- that would be the resolve. Now, because we're so more sophisticated, you've got to like shoot each other, or you've got to go to go get sued, or there's got to be a giant lawsuit, or um, as you can't help but recognize certain patterns, uh, it doesn't stop at just okay, I won the fight, I made my point, but it's like now I've got to beat you to death. I, all of these are aberrations, and I mean, because you think, what on earth is this like fight, and what on earth is this beating? Now there's no moral commentary on it. that's true. But why is it even asserted? I mean it's a reality of this world, but there's something to it, I, th- I think, that's actually preferable to this part of the masculinity that we've lost. There's something preferable to this way of solving problems than to the other ways in which we've invented. I lived in an age where boys could get into fisticuffs at school and not be put into prison for 20 years and have their parents sued. To say nothing of being expelled. The beautiful thing about that is you'd go to fisticuffs or whatever and it would get resolved and very frequently you'd become good friends with whoever you fought with. It's <laughs> just a weird thing. Say, okay, here's a person who cares about something as much as I care about something, and here's a person of integrity. It shook out fair. There's no hard feelings. It's over, right? And I know that this might all sound barbarous to our culture, but again, re-examine our culture and see if our culture isn't all the more perverted and barbarous than that, than just simply letting things happen. We've got this whole campaign against bullying, and I, you know, I don't know. I'm sure that there's some part of that that's valuable, But the flip side is, some bullying is good. If you're being a weirdo, or a freak, or you're going to be someone who uh, causes other people a lot of harm down the line, a good, swift corporate, hey, you're out of line, get back in line, is exactly the most healthy thing you can have in a fallen world. So from time to time, bullying is good. Uh, you, you find this kind of thing in like and I know this is going to be just terribly off-putting. I understand how out of season all of this is. Ah, I just don't care. In the football locker room, you see this kind of bullying all the time. Because you see a guy who doesn't respect his teammates, and football is a game where you're allowed to use a certain modicum of violence and he doesn't respect his teammates and he's going to use his violence in unpredictable and unlawful ways according to the game. He needs to be bullied. Progressively. Verbally. Than just by some non-violent or non-painful physical exertion. And then right down to, it would be more expedient for this man to get a gut punch than it would be for him to go out and injure some player because he doesn't understand what it means to be a male functioning on a team with other males. It's just masculine general principles and principles by which societies have been governed since Adam and Eve's fall into sin, up into the present, and our country and our way of doing things is so completely perverse, it upends and destroys all of that, and has turned us into an, an effeminate uh, kind of nanny state where none of this self-governance can take place, none of this helpful, positive—in big quotes here—bullying can take place. And so then you kind of wonder why you have an outcast who's perpetually outcast, who's never brought in under the fold, who then ends up shooting everyone. That's not the result of bullying. That's the result of a lack of bullying, of an impossibility of social correction amongst peers. And that translates all the way up into adulthood and all the way up into our society. Uh, It was much more of a uh, natural society to have something like lawful duels than it is to have the disaster of a justice system that we have today where somebody can just sue you for any reason and destroy your life and the lives of your children. So again, if all of this stuff strikes you as just kind of wild, all right, fair enough, but just let it it percolate and contrast that with the system we have in place right now And allow yourself to question if what I've said, even if maybe rough around the edges or wrong here or there, isn't, in an overarching way, more wise than what we have at present. Please.
2: I was just going to add to that. Um, So I was thinking of the kid who was like the, maybe the little kind of not real rough and tumble kind of kid, smaller, picked on whatever. And yes, you get the the dad or the uncle, you know, gives him the boxing lexon lessons, you know, lets him learn to defend himself sure. rather than carrying that with him into adulthood and oh. then blowing up finally and taking a gun. Exactly. It just irritates the heck out of me. Even raising my boy in, you know, who's now 27 there. I would say, stand up for yourself, you know, don't pick a fight, but stand up for yourself knowing that if he did, if there if it ever came to fighting, there'd be the parents dragged in, and I mean, not that we shouldn't be brought into it, but just a bigger deal made of it than should be. I, I agree with you that it's healthy to let the guys just duke it out once in a while, and
1: yeah, I, I mean, we um, yeah to, to, to tie a couple of themes together in this section, weak and isolated males are the most dangerous, and by that I mean like the most lawless and the most liable to do the most wickedness and the most evil harm. What those men needed or need still is to be brought into the camaraderie of their brothers. And sometimes that takes place in rough and non-politically correct ways. And that takes place sometimes in schoolyards and sometimes elsewhere. And sometimes it used to take place in the, in the workplace. Or, or let's step outside. But what happens is where a, where a corporate or individual correction takes place, there's then an embracing. That's why I brought up the example of where two, two young boys can get in fisticuffs and then be great friends after. And embracing takes place. It's where if there's some corporate dish, discipline that's meted out in the locker room, it's not to drive the guy away. It's to get the guy to knock it off so he can be part of the team. So that we can trust him and he can trust us. So that kind of, I mean, so much of what passes for bullying in this day and the age is social correction unto a higher good. So when you hear that language of bullying, just understand you need to have a Christian filter up. Is, are there examples of bullying that is just terrible and mean and evil and wicked? Of course there are. Of course there are that's the kind of bullying that we need to identify isolate and get rid of again for the sake of the individual bully that he can be reincorporated in to the rest of us so we lose sight of this we our solutions are sometimes or our cures are sometimes worse than the illness worse than the problem and they create these giant societal problems where then we go i don't understand how this happened You don't understand how this happened because you haven't thought through it for two seconds. You've just been consuming the pablum that's fed to you from on high about, oh, bullying bad. What's bullying? Pretty soon it's going to be bullying to just speak the word of God. And then you're going to be thrown into a prison for bullying or hate speech, as they say. So understand that, you know, all of this is rubbish and nonsense and to be resisted. And uh, what a wonderful opportunity we have to do that. Because... In truth, this is natural law stuff, so this is written on the hearts of people and will resonate with people on a deep level. So it's what's glued societies together uh, from the dawn of time. Please.
3: In the time I was in the classroom, 25 years, at the beginning, there was a hierarchy, kind of what you're speaking of. Like if there's a male principal and he could relate to the boys, and a feminine leadership took over about i don't know 15 years ago and what what's happened is if somebody picks a fight and you hit back you both have a problem you know and what it used to be is if somebody picked a fight or did something egregious they were the ones that got in trouble but now it's if you participate if you're around it you all get in trouble as evidenced by the kid who was killed uh, from bullying a few years ago, his head struck a pillar and he died. But before that, they'd gone to the office and said, he's being bullied egregiously. And nobody did anything. It's like, well, it'll work itself out. You know, so it's from the the leadership down to the classroom, to the parents. There, I agree with you.
1: Yeah, and, and I mean, some of this can be uh, even more positively stated than I have through um, various sports and athletics. This kind of thing happens, too, and happens in a more passive, natural way. Again, uh, you know, football and the violence there has been demonized so highly, and I understand that there are certain consequences. There are certain consequences to everything. But one of the beautiful things about that game or other physical games, I mean, I think to, to a degree, or you know, obviously, when you have like one-on-one contact sports that's self-evident when you have jiu-jitsu or wrestling or something like this but um, even when you go to like basketball and soccer and this that and the other thing you've got a lot of this um, sort of especially amongst men who by and large are the ones committing uh, violent acts and especially massively violent acts in those sports and in the contact and competition of those sports You've got this cohesion that occurs and this rubbing off of the sharp edges. So that in football, it's like, hey, that, you just stepped out of line by trying to injure that person. Now, the next play, I'm not going to try to injure you, but I'm going to let you know that that isn't acceptable. Those of you who have played sports know exactly what I'm talking about. That happens in all kinds of sports and needs to happen. That sort of thing. And if it's not official sports, it's play on the playground. Playing a game of tag. Somebody decides instead of tag, they're going to play slap. The other kids see that and they go, ah, oh, it ain't happening. And a lesson, a proportionate lesson is taught. Now, the good thing about that is the person learns, the slapper, it, he isn't like, oh, I'm, I'm bullied. But rather, he's like, oh, if I'm going to play with the rest, this is how I need to play. In other words, he's integrated in. And that's, so what would be called bullying today, because that clearly would be called bullying, and what someone would be suspended for today used to just be simply simple social cohesion and the way that we all naturally as human beings work and self-discipline. Men, by the way, do this verbally all the time. If you pay attention, if you have an eye to see it, we verbally do this, but that's all that's left. And our young men, uh, you know, if you were a young man once, you know this, that, Sometimes you need the physical reinforcement. The verbal isn't enough. There's all kinds of things like this that uh, we've lost as we have a feminized culture. And as we've tried to protect everyone, things have, lo and behold, become what? More dangerous. And as we've tried to make sure that no one who's weak gets bullied, we've just simply made them weaker and made them more dangerous. Whereas a sort of loving corporate discipline a sort of loving correction integrates and makes from weak into strong and makes from isolated into unified okay enough of that um the only thing i have to add
3: is you're talking about the good people in the bible like nehemiah
1: jonah job yeah. you finally caught on to those good guys Yeah, yeah yeah the, <laughs> the guys who aren't afraid to not be nice right Wow. Okay, so a fool's lips walk into a fight, and his mouth invites a beating. I'm going to take it up with the Holy Spirit if you don't like the violent imagery. A fool's mouth, seven, is his ruin, and his lips are a snare to his soul. So again, something we've reflected upon, that what comes out of your mouth has an effect on your own soul. It's this weird kind of uh, cyclical thing. Comes out of your heart, comes out of your mouth. What comes out of your mouth goes back into your soul in a self-perpetuating, sort of uh, ever-increasing way. So what you want to do is have interjected within your heart the wisdom of God. So the wisdom of God is in your heart, comes out through your mouth, and reinvigorates your soul, and now you've got the positive cycle going with the wisdom of God, as opposed to your own stinking thinking. So a fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are a snare to his soul. Okay, uh, continuing with the theme in verse 8 of the mouth and the disaster to which it can lead one, the words of a whisperer, a gossip, are like delicious morsels that's true up to a point isn't it and then he starts to really taste gross once you kind of recognize the outcome it's like food that's really really good but no matter how much you eat it you get an upset stomach for the next 24 hours pretty soon it doesn't taste that good (laughs) so the words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels they go down into the inner parts of the body and the view here is that they're delicious, so you take in this gossip, which is, you know, dwelling on the sins of others, the scandal, the intrigue, you know, the drama, and that goes, like, that, that's not just something that goes in one ear and out the other. There's no such thing as the, the healthy entertaining of gossip. The point is that the gossip goes into one ear and instead of going out the other, goes into the very depths of a person and becomes one with that person. So the more gossip and drama you listen to, the more gossipy and dramatic you're going to become. While I'm busy offending everyone in this one, uh, let let me just hit one more out there. Women, it's not venting. Stop calling it that. (laughs) Okay. I'm in big trouble. All oh, right. The words of a whisper are like delicious morsels that go down to the inner parts of the body. Get away from gossip because it's going to poison you. That's the thing. Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. Which is really, really devastating. So, okay. So everything's constantly deteriorating, isn't it? You know, you paint your house, and it's already starting to fade. No sooner than you get the first coat up there. It's already starting the process of fate. You buy a new car and you drive it off the lot and it's immediately depreciated some astronomical amount. So everything is deteriorating, always. Now, the destroyer has every advantage because he's, de- he's just pushing that deterioration further. All inertia is with a destroyer. That's why destroying is so easy. To build something is actually hard. To correct something is actually hard because you're fighting against all that inertia and you're fighting against whatever destroyers there may be. But you can't just sit and rest. You can't be like, okay, I painted the house, I never have to paint again. It's one of the fun lies of advertising. This is the last whatever it is you'll ever buy again. Is that true? It's never been true once. Lifetime guarantee. Well, what lifetime? It's lifetime? I guess every product's guaranteed for its own life. Ah, it's dead. It's no longer guaranteed. For your lifetime, well, some lives are longer and harder than others. So all of these things uh, we want to see through. Everything deteriorates. There is no neutral. Everything is getting sucked down. So if you're lazy or slack in your work, in your vocations, it's not like everything's just going to stay put. Everything is already going down the drain. If you're slack in your duties, you're not doing what you're supposed to, you're not maintaining, that's to do your duty is to maintain and God willing to increase, okay? But to just be lazy or slothful is actually to allow things to deteriorate, that is to be a brother to him who destroys. So in the spiritual realm, this is all the more poignant and will cut you right to the heart because the one who destroys in the spiritual realm is the devil. So thus, Sloth and laziness, dereliction in one's vocations, actually aid the devil. And this is something that the forgiveness of sins can't get you around. You need the forgiveness of sins. We all need the forgiveness of sins because we daily sin much and we fail in all of our vocations. Luther says, "As soon as you think you're sanctified and pious and holy, and you should examine yourself, your station in life according to the Ten Commandments." Okay, so say. How am I doing as a father? Let's look at the Ten Commandments. How am I doing as a husband? Let's look at the, that. Then you're going to have plenty of sins to confess. Okay, Those sins are forgiven, but that doesn't change the reality of get busy. It doesn't change the reality that whoever is slack in his vocation is a brother to him who destroys, so get after it, that you be the brother to the one who builds. And you can think of that in a very human way of somebody who's building and trying to do what's right. Your slothfulness just is dead weight. But you can also think of that in terms of Christ who is building his kingdom, not to be slack in your vocations, lest you be a brother to him who destroys, but be faithful in your vocations and be a brother to him who is building Christ. All right, so you can, you can pick that, but you're going to have to fight against all the inertia of the devil, the world, and your own sinful flesh. Well and good. What else are we going to do in this life? May as well attack those things head on and have some fun while we're doing it. All right, the Lord be with you.